I'm not sure about you, but I feel like over the past few months, I have become intimately aware of the existence of viruses in all their different forms. Some for me, some for my family members, especially for my children, just viruses and stuff in the air because of, I don't know if it's the weather or the pollen or the allergies or the ups and downs of the temperature, but for whatever reason, it's just been a really sick time in, in the life of my people, and I know a lot of yours too, and a lot of people in our church. So I was just reading about viruses, because why not? They're a part of my life. I might as well get to know them. And viruses are weird. They do weird things. Their entire existence is weird, because they're tiny, like really, 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 really tiny, like the fraction of a size of a normal cell, which is also tiny. And so there are these little bitty things, and they just kind of exist mindlessly. They're kind of alive. They're kind of not. They don't really do anything until they come into contact with a host cell. And then they worm their way inside of this cell, and then all of a sudden they spring to life and they start making more of themselves. They start replicating until one of two things happens. Either there's so many that the cell itself bursts open and they scatter out, or they just start leaking out a little bit at a time. But then, with more viruses now being made, they start finding other cells and infecting these. And those viruses and those cells do the same thing until before you know it, you feel like death warmed over, all because of this tiny little virus particle that's wreaking havoc on your entire system. Sin works a lot like a virus. Oftentimes, it starts very small, almost unnoticeable. But then, if given the opportunity, it begins to grow and grow and multiply and multiply, seeking to destroy its host, to destroy us. In fact, when the Bible talks about sin, we see words like slavery, that it engulfs us and entwines us and is seeking to kill us. But not only is sin seeking to destroy individuals, not only is it seeking to destroy a body, but it seeks to destroy community, to branch out from the original host and start to destroy anybody in its path. As we've been looking over the past few weeks through these first chapters of Genesis, we've seen God as the creator of the universe who made everything and sustains everything. We've seen him as father who gives life and love and lavishes his his wondrous things on us because that's how much he cares for us. But we've also seen him as as lawgiver, as the one who establishes truth and boundaries. But in Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, we can look at those laws and look at those guidelines that God lays out and see them as almost arbitrary. That God kind of drew these things out of the sky and says, you know what, don't go here, don't do this, do this, do this. And it doesn't feel grounded until we get to Genesis chapter 4. Because in Genesis chapter 4, we start to realize that there are natural consequences to sin, towards stepping out of God's boundaries, towards going beyond the laws and the commandments that God has given and trying to live and exist in a way that we design. And in Genesis 4, we learn the horrific outcomes that result from a failure to keep God's commandments. And so today we're going to look at the story of Cain and Abel. And we're going to take just one week to shift our focus from the character and nature of God to examine the character of this thing that is in direct opposition to God. 
sin and how sin not only affects the sinner, but the very fabric of human community. And we'll see as God commands these people to be fruitful and multiply, sin comes in the way of that and starts to destroy and divide what God brought together. And so we're going to read the entirety of chapter 4. Actually, we'll just read verses 1 through 8 this week, and we're going to look at the rest next week. And so let's just look at these very first verses. In Genesis chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel, and now Abel was keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desire for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. May God add his blessing and favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Father God, week after week, we say that. We thank you for your word. And God, today it's hard on the surface to be thankful for this word because it's such a tragic story. And it's even more difficult because this tragic story is all of our stories. That all of us have sin crouching at the door. That temptation and evil desires that come from inside and from outside are seeking to not only destroy who we are, but to destroy the communities in which you've placed us to live and to thrive and to grow and to serve. So God, as we look at this example from Scripture today, Help us to recognize the importance of diversity in the body of Christ. Help us to recognize the importance and the beauty of community. But also help us to know well the dangers of sin, especially sins of jealousy and comparison and favoritism. And God, give us a desperation to preserve the unity of our community and not to let the petty things break us apart and divide us and not to let sin take hold deep in our souls and then work its way out. Help us to be instruments of peace, not division. People of righteousness and holiness, not sinfulness. God, we thank you that you love us enough that your grace covers our sins. God, help us to fight temptation, and to make war against those sins so that we can honor you and give glory to you, but also, God, so that we can encourage and equip and lift one another up as we love one another as you've loved us. And we ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, God gives humanity a commandment, a purpose, a design. 
He creates us in his image. Male and female, he creates all of us in his own image. And then he gives the commandment to go out, to be fruitful and multiply. To make more of yourselves. To fill the world with the glory of God. And so they did. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And we see these people fulfilling their purpose to be fruitful and multiply. But if we put this together with what we looked at a couple weeks ago in Genesis chapter 3, we recognize that in the face of this little baby, as this baby is born into the world, that this is a sign and a reminder of God's grace. Because remember, Genesis chapter 3 is all about sin entering God's good world. And wreaking havoc on the relationship between humanity and God. And so all of the promises of Genesis 1 and 2, all the blessings of Genesis 1 and 2 were turned into curses. Sin and the power of hell and evil comes into the world and starts unraveling all the beautiful things that God had established. And we know the ultimate wage for sin, the ultimate consequence was death. And yet here they were, sinful people, rebels who broke God's commandments and laws and were driven out of God's good garden, still being able to participate in God's commandments, still being able to live out their purpose of being fruitful and multiplying and bringing new life into the world and taking the image of God and spreading it all over. And so we see that God allows them to continue in that purpose, even though they rebelled against it. And that's really good news. And here they are creating community. And I love how this story is told. Because we get right to the core of it. Eve has two sons, one named Cain, another named Abel. And then in chapter 4, verse 2, All that we learn about these two people is that Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. Their occupation, in essence, defined who they were. And these are the only details that we get. There's no biography. There's no this is how they were raised or this is what their personality was. You have Abel, who is the keeper of the sheep, and you have Cain, who works the ground. And so the only details that we have about these children is that they were different. We often assume that diversity is either directly or indirectly a result of the fall. That it's a result of time and space and necessity that we eventually just grow apart and so people get more and more different as we go along. When we look at this passage of scripture, we see that this idea of diversity of differentiation between gifts and skills and personality, all of these things were by divine appointment. Here you have two people created by God. The same thing true about them as any other person born into the world, that they were fearfully and wonderfully made, created in the image of God by a gracious and loving God, but they were created with different skills, different gifts, and individual purposes fit for helping their community thrive. They needed each other. One kept the sheep, one worked the ground. 
And when you put these things together, you are able to eat meat and have clothing, but also have fruit for sustenance and nourishment. And so these two had these incredible skills that worked together for the thriving and the benefit of their community. Now, seeing the story in hindsight, if you've been in church for any period of time, or if you've ever heard Bible stories or had a children's Bible, this is one of those that pops up all the time. And so if we look at this story in hindsight, then it's easy to start looking at Cain's gift as Cain's occupation as less than. Because we look at it from the back forward, we know that God rejects Cain's offering, and so it's easy to start saying, well, Abel must have been better. His job must have been more important. The thing that he offered as a sacrifice must have had more meaning. Clearly, Abel is the better brother and has the better giftednesses and skills. But that's not true. They were equal in their gifts. They were equal in their calling. They were born on a common ground, but had a diverse purpose. And this is God's design for community. When we think about community, especially Christian community, it's pretty simple how it's designed to work. Christian community is people who are equally called but diversely gifted to accomplish a common goal. That all of us come into this place on equal footing. We talk about that every week during our confession of sin and our assurance of pardon. That first and foremost, what unifies us is that we're created by God and that also that we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And so no matter who we are, no matter what you can do, no matter what abilities you have, no matter how long you've been in church, we all walk through these doors every single week on common ground with a common expectation to use our gifts and our skills, no matter what they may be, to glorify God and work for the good of the rest of our community. Paul describes it like this when he talks about Christian community. Excuse me. He says that we are one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And he goes on to teach us that we are a body and that each part of that body has a specific purpose and has a specific role and that we shouldn't have any desire to be something other than what we are because what we are is who God has made us to be. And whatever gifts and abilities and skills we bring to the table in Christian community is something that God has a very specific design and purpose for. We were made to be different and to use those differences well. And so that's how we see this small community here in Genesis chapter 4. You have one brother who does one thing. You have another brother who does another thing. There is meaning and there is value and there's purpose in what both people have to bring to the table. And so then we get to verse 3. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock in the fat portion." And so we see these two men bring their offering to God, taking their gifts and skills and using them as an act of worship. But then something strange happens. Continuing in verse 4, it says, Abel brought his firstborn of his flock and the fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. 
But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And so Cain was angry, and his face fell. And so now, we have a problem. Two people coming to worship God, bringing what they have to the table, bringing their gifts and skills, and God honors one and rejects another. And now at first glance, this may seem like maybe God likes meat more than he likes fruit. Or maybe God is just arbitrarily deciding which one that he likes better. And if this is true, then Cain would have every right to be angry, right? We don't like favoritism, especially when it excludes us. Nobody wants to feel like someone else is liked more than them, especially when it seems like such an arbitrary thing, like which offering was brought forward. And so it makes sense, because this is what Cain had. This is what he was called to. This is what he had to offer God, and God rejected it. How can you process something like that? Of course, your response is going to be anger. But then we get a little more insight when we look at verse 6, and reality begins to set in. God says to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. You see, when we see this passage in full, we realize that God wasn't concerned with the content of Cain's gift, but the character of his heart. It wasn't the object that Cain brought forth to God that God rejected, but it was the very heart of the man who brought it. Because God says, if you were to do this well, if you were to do this rightly, then of course I would have accepted your offering. Of course I would have welcomed it in. But when we see Cain's reaction to God, it reveals the depths of his heart. Here's somebody who is selfish, who's jealous, and he's proud. And he begins looking at himself and says, you know what? I brought what I was supposed to bring. I did what I was supposed to do. God should have honored it no matter what. And yet he still seems to just love my brother so much more than me. And so Cain becomes angry and bitter towards God and towards his brother. But God gives them a warning. He says, listen, if you were to do this the right way, with the right heart, then I'll receive your offering and I'll receive your worship. But if not, then you need to know that sin is crouching at your door. And that's such a visual passage of Scripture, just seeing the depths and the darkness of sin as a monster crouching, ready to devour him. And God says, if you don't catch this now, If you don't pay attention to this now, it's going to consume you. But Cain didn't see it. Just like his father before him, Cain would rather see the fault in others, the fault in God, more than the fault in himself. Remember in Genesis 3, as God is laying out the consequences of sin, he looks at Adam and he says, why did you do this thing? And Adam says, the woman that you gave me. That double deflection. That it was her and it was you, but it wasn't me. And in the same way, instead of taking ownership over his own sin and recognizing his jealousy and his pride, Cain begins to look outward. Saying, God didn't accept my offering. And this little guy over here thinks that he's better than me because God received his. I wonder how often this happens to us. 
how often we find ourselves, especially in Christian community, comparing and contrasting ourselves to others. Looking at our gifts and skills and our perceived callings and comparing them to all of those around us. And then through that, either feeling pride, thinking that we are more valuable or more special or more important in the life of the church and the life of community, or feeling shame, thinking that we don't have the same to offer as somebody else. And then sin starts crouching at the door and, and inching its way in as we begin to feel jealousy and allow division to creep in to our lives. And so we need to be aware of this. We need to heed that warning that God gave to Cain and constantly ask ourselves, is sin crouching at my door? Especially these small, invisible sins that start with just whispers in the back of our mind saying, you're not good enough, or you're better than this person. Or think about all the things that you've done and how God seems to be blessing this person, but not blessing you. That's not fair. And to begin to hear those voices for what they really are. Sin and death crouching at our door, waiting to consume us. But to do that, it's important. That we don't find ourselves so prideful that we can't hear God speak. That we don't find ourselves so distant from God that we can't hear his voice when the spirit whispers truth to combat the lie. And so we have to be steadfastly in God's word. We have to be steadfastly in prayer. We have to be involved and immersed in Christian community so that when the Spirit speaks and starts to reveal those desires deep down in our hearts that are contrary to what God has for us, that we can hear those things and address them immediately. Because if not, they become very dangerous and much harder to control. I don't know that I have a nemesis. I might. If so, they're secret right now. But if I had to choose, if you were to ask me and pin me down and say, Chris, what is your arch nemesis in this world, your greatest enemy in this world? I think I would say sweet gum trees. I hate sweet gum trees. If you don't know what sweet gum trees are, you've probably stepped on their children because they start as these small little round instruments of death. They're like nature's Lego blocks. They're covered in spikes and they go everywhere, all over the place. I don't know how one tree can produce so many things. I don't know why our ground can't be filled with walnuts or apples. It's filled with these tiny little spiky balls just ready to attack your feet and cause you great misery and pain. And that's how they begin their life. But then they go further than that because they produce, I would assume, millions of these things. And they seem to follow me wherever I go, Whatever, wherever I live, wherever I find myself trying to plant things and grow things. I am really good at just attracting sweet gum trees. And what's amazing about them is they, they spread wide with these little instruments of death. And then those things take root quickly. It seems like they're sprouting up all the time. In between mowing the grass, I'll find all of these little sprouts of sweet gum trees that seem to take root and dart up. But when they're small like that, they're easy to take care of. You can grab the little spiky ball, throw it out in the woods, throw it away, get rid of it. When it starts to grow up, it's just like a little weed at first. It's small, so you can mow right over it. Even a few weeks in, when it starts to get a little tense and a little stronger, you can just pick it up. The roots are shallow and tear it right out. But if you wait, 
not only will one of those little trees start to grow up, but they grow up everywhere. And before you know it, you can be consumed by these sweet gum trees. Cain's jealousy and his anger, much like these sweet gum trees, starts small. With something small and ugly deep down inside him, this jealousy, this rage, and this anger. But at that moment, it's controllable. All he has to do is decide, nope, I'm not going to let this win. All he has to do is heed the warning of God and say, you know what? You're right. I am feeling this way about my brother. I am feeling this way about you, and it's not right. My heart wasn't in the right place when I went to worship. I understand. Correct me. Help me know. And just confess it all. Get it all out there and move on. When it starts to grow a little more, he could have recognized it and cut it down at the source. And said, nope, I'm not going to let this go any farther. I value my God and I value my brother more than I value my own opinions and more my own feelings. And so I'm just going to get rid of this right now. But he didn't. And then his sin and his desire comes into full bloom. And we see in Genesis 4.8, it says, Cain spoke to Abel his brother. And I don't know why, but that just makes it so much worse. That he goes and he speaks to his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. The sin that started so small spiraled out of control and the results were absolutely heartbreaking. What we see here is community destroyed. Cain killed part of himself, part of his community, part of what made their entire situation thrive. And now, not only is Abel dead, but so is the community that God had established and put in place. But not just here. Because as we're going to look next week at how God is both a God of justice and mercy... We see God send Cain out into the world, and Cain says, I can't go out there. I'm a murderer. Everywhere I go, people are going to want to kill me, and they're going to want to take my life like I took the life of my brother. And so this one action not only destroyed this immediate community, but he was going to take the ramifications of that into every community that he entered from that point forward. It's easy to look at. And we've talked about this over the past few weeks. But it's easy to look at sins like covetousness and jealousy and pride and comparison and favoritism. These are things that are really excusable for us. One, because when they start, nobody sees them. It's just you. Or maybe you and a few people as you gossip and talk. It's just me and it lives in my head and they're just little thoughts. And thoughts don't hurt anybody. And so it's easy to excuse those things because they're not noticeable and nobody pays attention. And then we can start to justify them. You know what? I am really awesome. I do contribute so much to the life of the community. Everyone should be thankful that I'm a part of this church and that I brought my gifts to the table. Or, that's not fair. I do so much, and yet I feel like God is blessing all these other people more than me. That's not fair, God. Why don't you love me as much as X, Y, or Z? Or we start to feel that shame of feeling, you know what? I have nothing to offer God. I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. And so I must not be that valuable. I must not be that important. And so we start to slip away. But still, we look at these things as internal 
and that they don't affect anybody else but us. But Abel would beg to differ. And so would the rest of Scripture. And we know this to be true if we're really evaluating ourselves rightly because these sins that start invisible, like a tiny microscopic virus somewhere in the back of our hearts, in the back of our minds, they begin to grow. And they begin to thrive and they begin to take over our hearts and our minds. They begin to drive our life. Its desire is to rule over us just like it was for Cain. And then it begins to blossom in an effort to destroy not only ourselves, but the communities in which God has placed us. These thoughts, these whispers, these invisible sins begin to turn into tension. They cause unspoken bitterness. They start to put distance in between either us and God or us and other people. We start avoiding God or we start avoiding others around us so that we can start to separate ourselves because we're angry or we're bitter or we're ashamed or whatever the case may be. And that distance begins to lead to division. Division can lead to conflict. And then from there, the sky's really the limit on how much sin can do to cause chaos in our own lives and in our communities. And so we have to learn to make war with these sins before they come in to bloom. Because yes, when we're looking at the story, it's a worst case scenario of a brother killing a brother. And we may think there's no way. I'm not that guy. I'm not that woman. I don't kill people. Most of us, not killers. And so we can look at that and say, this is never going to happen. So it's not that big of a deal. But we see in Scripture, as Jesus teaches about hatred, he says that if you hate your brother and your sister, then you're as good as a murderer. John tells us that if we hate our brothers and sisters, then we don't have love for God living in us because we can't love God and hate those that he's created. Maybe we don't kill someone but we'll allow relationships to crumble and fall apart, relationships that God has put in our lives for a specific reason and purpose. We can allow ourselves to be disconnected from Christian community that is so vital for our spiritual growth and well-being. All these things start to happen, and then maybe we gossip, or we start causing problems or divisions, and we split churches, and we see death come in many forms. And so we have to make war with it before it comes into bloom. And so how do we do that? Apart from, as we've already talked about, spending time in Scripture and prayer and in church, all these things are important. And then we also need to learn to celebrate diversity. Instead of coming in, looking at, comparing, and contrasting ourselves with other people, we should start to recognize the goodness and the giftedness of other people in the life of the church and celebrate those things. Instead of feeling maybe intimidated by a gift that you wish you had, or seeing yourself more highly because you have gifts that are more obvious and maybe things that are more easily noticed. We need to learn to see the people who have the gifts that we desire and celebrate those things and say, I love that you do that because I can't do that. And if you weren't here, this wouldn't be happening. We need to learn to see the gifts that are hard to see and celebrate people that are working behind the scenes and doing the hard things that maybe you don't even notice, but paying attention to those little things and celebrating the diversity that makes the church unique. 
and start to recognize that because we have a creative, diverse God, he's called us together to be a creative, diverse community. And when we live that way, when we serve that way, when we worship that way, we are reflecting the character and the nature of God. We are displaying his image to the world and we're living out our purpose. And so we should celebrate diversity. We should also use our gifts as worship and not warfare. Sometimes we come to church ready for war, whether we know it or not. I was doing a little project the other day, working with some guys that I'd never met before. And it was outside, manual labor kind of stuff. And I started to realize something really weird about myself. Because I know I'm competitive. I've always been competitive. But I'm competitive about weird things now. Because all of my athleticism, whatever little bit there was, is pretty much gone. It's not like I'm going to beat anything at anybody or anybody at anything for the rest of my life. Apparently, including speaking, which is important because that's one of the things I do. But now I'm saying words backwards. And so when I get in these situations, I get weirdly competitive. And we were digging holes for a fence. And I was like, I'm going to need to dig more holes than this other guy. And I'm digging holes faster and doing things. It's just weird how that comes out. And that can happen in the life of the church, too. We can come in wanting to do the things that we do really well so that we stand out. Or maybe we hide our gifts and the things that God has given us because we don't want to stand out. And we don't want to feel like we're going to be put up and compared and contrasted with other people. And so we come wielding our gifts like a weapon, either using it to the max of its ability so that we can be noticed or hiding it away so that no one will ever see us and be able to do that with us. We guard and protect ourselves one way or the other. But God has gifted and equipped each one of us with these gifts and skills so that first and foremost we can worship him and also so that we can build one another up so that we can encourage one another, so that we can lift one another up. When we come to church each and every Sunday, we should leave tired because we've worked so hard, because we've used our gifts to serve, and we're pouring out to others and loving others more than we're expecting to receive. And so we should leave church tired, but we should also leave church equipped and encouraged because other people are leaving tired as well because they've been pouring into you the same as you have been pouring into others, and we all bring those things together to lift one another up and most importantly to lift up the name of Jesus. And so when we leave this place each and every Sunday, you should feel encouraged because of who you are and what God has given you. But of course, there are times, no matter how hard we try, that temptation and sin and doubt and all these things begin to creep in. And when that happens, we need to learn to focus on our shortcomings, not on blame shifting. Remember, Adam, immediately, God says, why did you do this? Not me, the woman in you. He comes to Cain and says, you can deal with this now. You can handle this now. And Cain says, nope, not my fault. I'm going to go eliminate the problem. Now, I spend a lot of time, because I teach middle school, I spend a lot of time resolving conflict between middle schoolers. And it's amazing. There's a truth. It's a universal principle. It's never their fault. When there are two fighting each other, when you pull them aside, now what happened? Well, he, it's never I I did this. This is my fault. I said something I shouldn't have said. I did something I shouldn't have done. This is all on me. I take full responsibility for it. It's always he. It's always she. It's always this person did something first, right? But weirdly enough, because we're all scoffing, ah, middle schoolers, that doesn't change. 
Because I spend a lot of time around adults, too. And I spend a lot of time doing conflict with adults, too. And every single time, it's this person did this, did this, did this. Very rarely are we self-aware enough to stop, especially in the middle of sin and conflict, and say, you know what? It was me. But that's how we should conduct ourselves. That we should take responsibility for our sins. We're told in Scripture that it is so long as it depends on us that we should live at peace with everyone, which means we can't concern ourselves with the sin of others when we have sin in our own lives that we need to rectify. And if there is a division in relationship, we need to be the one to take the steps to repair that. And now think about how much easier life would be if everyone says, yes, this is what I did, and I'm sorry, and we could be reconciled that quickly. So we can't focus on shifting blame elsewhere, but focus on our own shortcomings. And then we need to learn to confront sin before it blooms. And we do that with confession and accountability. In the book of James, in James chapter 5, verse 16, James says this, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another, that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. That passage comes in a long line of James saying, is anyone sad? Is anybody sick? Is anybody broken? If that's the case, then pray for them, but also confess your sins to one another. James tells us that there is healing in confession, but the reality is there's also awkwardness in confession, and so because of that, we'd rather not do it at all. But we need to learn to be people of confession, not just what we do on Sunday mornings where we have this nice blanket confession of sin that covers a lot of bases generally, but being willing to confess our sins to one another and be specific with one another, especially when it's sin that's causing division between us and another person. And to do that quickly, to recognize those things and confess those things to God and others while they're small so that it can be eliminated from your life and not destroy you. And then you have to come on the other side of destruction and chaos and anger. And then, like Cain does, come to a righted relationship with God and others. But also we need that accountability. Because isolation breeds division. And I know this is true for me. I'm going to assume that it's true about most of us, that any time there's an awkwardness, any time there's a problem, any time there's a conflict, the natural reaction that we have, if it's not to blow up and, and fight, it's just to pull away. Whether that's out of emotion or just out of ease of relationship, just, you know what, if this is how hard it's going to be, no thanks. And it's not always a hard move away. Sometimes it's we just change where we sit. Or we slow down with texts and phone calls. Or we spend a little less time thinking and praying about that person. And it's a slow drift. And we begin to isolate ourselves, especially from the rest of the body of Christ. And the further that we go away, the easier it is for sin to come in and divide. And so before this happens, we need to be surrounded with people who are going to hold us accountable, but also encourage us and pray for us and be there with us when life is difficult and hard and when we are difficult and hard. And we need to learn to be people of confession 
being able to say, you know what, this is how I feel, and this is what's going on, and here's my shortcomings, and here's the places where I feel like some dangerous things are starting to creep into my life, and I need you to watch those things in me, I need you to pay attention to those things for me, and I need you to pray for me that God would deliver me from this before it gets too hard. And then finally, we just need to learn to repent, believe, and serve. Repentance is more than just confessing and asking forgiveness, but walking away from those things, doing the opposite of those things. And so if I'm feeling jealous about somebody else, if I'm feeling prideful, then I need to make sure that I counter that not simply with nothing. It's not the thumper principle. If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. If you can't say something nice, say something nice. It's not that hard. We make it that hard. We, we give ourselves these excuses of saying, well, I just can't do this. I can't say this. I'm in this place, and so I can't do this. But the scriptures teach us that the gospel destroys those things, that it gives us the power over sin and death, and we're not slaves to those things. And so we can counteract temptation and sin with right behavior, right action, and community-focused love. And so we need to learn to repent. If there's someone that that you feel jealous of or that you've had some issues with or some bitterness or some tension, then it's your job to spend some time loving that person and encouraging that person and celebrating that person. We need to believe the gospel. All of this comes from a lack of belief. If we don't believe that God is a good and creative God who carefully forms us in our mother's wombs and designs us for who we are and gives us these good gifts in Jesus Christ so that we can serve the body of Christ. If we don't believe those things are true, of course we're going to have problems. Of course we're going to have issues. But if we believe the gospel, if I really believe that whatever gifts I have are gifts given to me by God for a purpose, then we're not going to have problems using those and celebrating other people. And then we need to learn to serve. So much of this comes from this consumer mentality in in the American Christian church that we come to church, that we come to this community so that everybody else can give to us and meet our needs and care for us. And then when that doesn't happen the way that we think it should, that's when bitterness and anger starts to come. Cain didn't get the reaction that he wanted from God and it threw him into this tizzy. And the same thing happens with us when we come in. If we don't get exactly what we're expecting, then we leave a little huffy. And then when the next week we're expecting something more and we leave a little huffy again. But the reality is that happens because we're not in here serving. We're not in here doing what we're called to do. Put your gifts to work for the body of Christ. And you'll find that if we do the right things for the right reasons, and it's hard to sync those things up, but the more we practice and the more we try, the more God puts those pieces together the way they should. When we do the right things for the right reasons, gospel work for gospel causes, that God creates this unbelievable community as everyone is working together for this common goal. And so we need to pay attention to the sin in our lives. We need to pay attention to those quiet whispers and temptations And we need to remember why we were made. We need to remember why God created us to bear his image and to be with one another. 
We need to remember why we were saved, that we weren't saved to an individual relationship with God, but we were saved to a corporate relationship with God. We are the body of Christ, the church of God coming together, put together by God for a purpose and a reason, all of us having diverse gifts and skills so that when we come together and we all do our part, we have something that the world can't even begin to understand because it's a community established by God resting on Christ's work working through the power of the Spirit. And so let's look at this example of Cain and his brother and take heed and pay attention so that we know when sin is crouching at the door and that we can rule over it for God's glory, but also for the good of our community and the good of those that God has put in our lives.